0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants, and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW.
1: Makes latex masks for the film and TV industry specializing in noses. Maybe we track him down, he'll point us in the right direction. But sir, how are we going to get there? That's over 30 miles away. I know. Hollyhop Drive. Back on Uh, Red uh, Wharf. Uh, Uh, Matter Paddle. Back on Red (laughs) Wharf. Time slides where you walk into a photograph and... That's on back it. on Red Wolf. Wolf. Got it. Beam there. Oh. That That's That's right. not us, sir. No, no, we don't, don't do that, sir. All right, if you've got no teleportation systems or anti-matter reassemblers, no option. We'll have to catch the bus.
2: Good morning, London. It is Thursday, December 17, 2009. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now till noon. No, not right wing. Just right. Fade into colour, colour into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be alright. is a number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation today where robert and i are going to be spending the whole hour looking at some of the aspects of the recent bus strike which isn't quite over yet although it's tentatively over and the buses are going to start on saturday with full service i understand coming back to london on or about january the fourth and so that means uh, that uh, we won't really see a complete bus service until after christmas which is what i said when i was talking about that whole issue briefly earlier on the show so today we're going to be talking about the issues of whether the ltc is is it or should it be an essential service and uh, another thing that has concerned me at least for the past uh, well for over the whole strike is listening to what people are suggesting as solutions i think they're jumping from the frying pan into the fire sometimes robert it's, uh, it's scary. Well, they're not learning lessons from well, this. Well, yeah, or perhaps the wrong ones. And then, of course, we're going to be looking at unions and the labor movement in general, how, how it affects issues such as this. So it's a bit of a, of a... We can't really separate the two, but for the first half of the show, I would say that we're a little more emphasizing the recent strike, second half, maybe more unions, but not leaving either issue. So if you want to call in, 519-661-3600, you might have a spin on this that we haven't thought about. But, um... So i'll kick it off shall i robert go ahead okay Uh, you know i heard the mayor on the radio what um, a week or two ago talking about just 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 when they when they thought the strike was tentatively over and she said let the past be the past and we'll just move on after you know just happy to put the whole strike behind them and i thought about what does it mean you know to move on what are they what is she talking about moving on And I gave it some thought, and I think moving on means moving on to higher taxes to support the London transit system, which they're already talking about, moving on to higher passenger fares to support the London transit system, which they're talking about, moving on to a continued service monopoly, which includes the LTC, taxis, limos, cabs, and all that stuff, and I'll be talking about that later, too. Moving on with a continued labor monopoly, which, of course, is the union at the LTC and moving on with a fairly reasonable guarantee of future strikes causing similar damage in the future and of course not moving on very quickly with increased traffic congestion noise and air pollution and uh, now of course this is is of course a big relief to all the people who need the bus and I tell you I know some people that were hurting really bad because of this and it shocked me what some people were paying and and doing to get around alternatively and um, so, you know, I'm thinking here the public's very angry. They really want some kind of solution. They don't want to see this kind of thing happen again. They don't want to be held hostage and yet being held hostage is part of the process. That's part of the whole union process, isn't it, Robert? That's their leverage, isn't That's it? That's the whole leverage. Without that, you without you being the hostage, unions have no power. And so this is what scares me. Right lately, we've been hearing a call for making buses an essential service status. And this is actually something the unions have wanted. They've wanted forced arbitration from the beginning, and uh, they would love to have that status, status for a number of reasons. First of all, it would raise their wages, and they'd get all the benefits that, city, that full-time city employees get. But what does essential service mean you know i had to think about that and why they even use that and i've been in the in politics for what 20 some odd years now a little more and every time i hear that term used i know it, it it's a, it's a code word for something else and when it's used by politicians and bureaucrats not by the public the public actually means a dictionary definition essential service something i need to live something i need to get around you, you can't know? do without it you can't do without it and that perfectly sensible but when a politician uses that same term he's using it against you and basically when when they use it and that you know bureaucrats union people politicians essential service basically only applies to failed coercive monopolies being run by governments at some level or another in which spending is hopelessly out of control the word essential is basically a euphemism for monopoly and what is essential to statists is that the state be the sole provider of whatever the service, you know, whatever service has been so designated. For example, healthcare, education, those are monopolies. Because even though people say, oh, you can have private schools, no, you can't, not without servicing the monopoly. We'll be talking about that term shortly, too. We got in an interesting discussion <laughs> about that word earlier this week. But of course, to ordinary people, the term essential service applies to a service necessary. Uh, to their ability to survive whether it's literally whether it's economically or even socially for that matter so be thankful that our food has not been designated an essential service or good or we'd be standing in the bread lines along with everybody else in any country where it was so designated and you get what's given to you whether you like it or not. So I was thinking, if something's truly to be regarded as an essential service, then what should be essential is the fundamental right of anyone and everyone to provide that fundamental service. Wouldn't that be the, the answer? I would think it that way, yeah, but yeah. a lot of people don't. You know, I, I'm thinking... No, no, Mr. Farmer, we're not going to allow you to grow any food because we've declared food an essential service, so we have to provide it. Can you, can you hear that, you know? Should you grow any food of your own, we will p- penalize you and prohibit you from doing so, end quote, you know? And uh, as ridiculous as that sounds, the irony of that example is that that's exactly what we do in agriculture in this country, <laughs> including the milk marketing boards, which was one of our subjects last week. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what marketing boards and governments do, is they stop production, they control it, or they create overproduction because they, they aren't subject to the marketplace which is giving them the information they need through pricing. So, when it comes to public transit if it's essential as I say it is then anyone should be able you know, to, to, to provide the service. In fact, the flood of people demonstrating their willingness to do so during the strike alarm the city to the point that it was about to consider on-the-spot fines for anyone caught accepting money to give anyone a ride somewhere for, you know, for money. And uh, anyone, that is, who is not in the Monopoly club of current cab owners in the city. So, uh, you know, have have, have you ever wondered why they charge an arm and a leg for a ride? That's the price you have to pay for limiting the competition. Private operators are using the government to create an artificial market, and whenever you hear the word artificial market, that means a forced market, where they introduce force into the marketplace, in which supply is kept low relative to... or. Yeah, kept low relative to demand. That's what they want. They want to keep a a high demand, low supply, and then they can control it. That's what monopolistic behavior is all about. And um, so basically, just because something's private doesn't mean it's not being regulated by government to a point where it has the same status as government. And I think this concept is so anti-capitalistic, what we do with our public transit so anti-free market it's very essence it seems to me that the essence in the word essential is is essentially anti-freedom that's what it's (laughs) what they mean when they say an essential service this service shall not be provided freely by anyone who wants to it's so essential you can't have it and you can't provide (laughs) it you know and that's exactly what it means and of course we got into the whole issue of monopoly and what does a monopoly mean and uh... Uh, I, I think we'll talk about that after this first break. We're already at the quarter of the hour. Um, and we'll. Wh- what you're about to hear on the other side of this bumper is also a clip from A Channel's news on Monday night um, that occurred on the night that we found out the strike was indeed ended, and they give a few facts about the strike that um, are interesting, but again, not essential to the argument, if you don't mind my using that word. And we'll return right after this quick break.
3: Come oh, is... on, <laughs> Hello, Stan. Here, yeah, what are you doing about so early? Oh, what's happened? Nothing. I'm on strike. On strike? Yeah. Oh, so that's why there was no buses. Oh, really, I do <laughs> think you might have told us. Me and Ollie, while we were walking two miles in the pouring rain. We couldn't tell you it happened so quickly. It's what's called a lightning strike. No, nah, Stan. Stan, don't tell me you couldn't get the men to hold up the strike for your mum. They wouldn't hold it up for Frank Cousins' mum. Huh? Well, the Dockers do. <laughs> That one in eighteen. You know, number eighteen is mum, she always gets her meeting before the strike. <laughs> <laughs> and last year, a Christmas nuts also. Oh, that's the front door? Yeah. Is that you, Arthur? Yes, of course it's me. Arthur? There's a bus strike. Have you heard? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have heard. <laughs> You busmen ought to be shot striking on a wet day like this. Well, it's the best time to strike, isn't it? Rainy days and Christmases. The railway's taught us that.
0: (laughs) It's a relief for 80,000 people who rely on the bus every day. London Transit strike is over. But will this come at a cost to taxpayers? Anna Blocko's joins us live with more Anna. Tara, the strike has been costly for the London Transit Commission and now the LTC must also come up with the money to pay for the new wages.
1: The contract was accepted by 72%. <laughs>
0: It's finally over, but the financial impact of the strike and increased costs of the New Deal may have the LTC turning to City Council for help there will likely be an impact on um, the gas tax money because it's based on ridership, and if the ridership isn't there, then there's an impact on that. We also know that fares will likely be uh, affected by this, and that's something that the LTC is going to have to review. And we did get a budget uh, that was looking at a 4.9% increase that's been submitted, and if there's a change to that, obviously the LTC is going to have to make... Um, a case for that. Here are the details. The contract runs for three years and nine months and is retroactive to July 1st. The wage hikes will see bus drivers earning more than $26 an hour by the end of the contract while skilled trade workers will get more than $30 an hour. The final cost of the improved benefits according to the union will total between 14 and 15 percent. We're told that the partial bus service will resume in four or five days and will be fully restored in about three weeks. Some who rely on bus services say they were angry about the length of the strike, but will forgive and forget.
4: Oh yeah, oh yeah, it depends on the transit, you know, that takes you where you want to go shopping, you know, to work, you know what I mean? It's handy, you know, you no know, bus, you know, it's, a lot of people lost their jobs over it, you know, I had jo- three jobs in a view, I lost.
0: Still, London Transit employee Rob Wilmot says he's upset for what the contract lacked, driver protection
4: i'm concerned about the safety of our drivers i I myself
2: have personally been assaulted physically verbally
0: Now, Tara, while some riders say they're willing to forgive and forget, we had dozens of people who commented on our Facebook page tonight. People saying they are still angry that the strike went on for this long. Many also said they don't think the bus drivers deserve the raise. Now, it's not entirely clear what that increase is. The union says between 14 and 15 percent. The commissions on math equates it to 13.2 percent.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. 519-661-3600, the number to call if you want to join us. Just before the break, I was talking about monopolies, and um, it's funny... Robert and I have this policy of not discussing issues before we come on the air, but I think we've broken that a couple of times, haven't we, Robert? Well, I think this particular one and, and the definition is... <laughs> of the word
5: monopoly, it <laughs> wasn't got... a discussion,
2: Bob, it was an argument. Yeah, we got into this <laughs> argument, and of course I had to settle it by picking up a dictionary. It turns out we were both right and we were both wrong, which was <laughs> kind of funny. And I was speaking of monopoly in a rather broader sense, and Robert just goes to me and says, well, monopoly, that means one, mono, right? and uh, yes that's what it means but monopoly when i picked up my trusty funk and wagnalls dictionary by the way the word monopoly comes from the word monos alone and poline to sell so to be the lone seller of something but what makes the term interesting is that that's just the general theme of monopoly and to be sure there is a, a, a monopoly but here's here are the definitions and there are five believe it or not Uh, Number one, the exclusive control of a commodity service or means of production in a particular market with the resulting power to fix prices. Now, that's an important fact, too, the fixing prices part. You might be the only uh, uh, business in a a geographic area, but if you have no power to fix prices, you might not be considered a monopoly. That's how anti-competition laws look at it. In law, a monopoly is an exclusive privilege granted by a government... Of buying, selling, making, or using anything. (laughs) So there is that, that's the monopoly I'm talking about. Um, number three, a company having a monopoly. Also, well, the company having a monopoly is a monopoly. Right. Okay. And number four, the commodity service, etc., controlled under a monopoly. So you could have perhaps one commodity or service, such as, oh, let's say, um, public transit, <laughs> controlled by a single entity, even though several other entities are providing the service, such as in, in a taxi. Industry. We have three companies, but I would still call it a monopoly. The prices are fixed. The prices are fixed. It is the government that determines all that. Has to approve it. Even has to tell them when to give discounts to seniors and things like that. And of course, the fifth um, definition of monopoly is having exclusive possession or control of anything. And that could be that could be property. You have a monopoly over your property, in a sense. You know, you've got a monopoly on anything you create. It's also a board game. It's a board, <laughs> board game, too. And uh, that's where a lot of people get some of their strange ideas about monopoly. You know, the board game brings in so many artificialities to it. First of all, it's a fixed pie system, okay, which is how most monopolists think. They think there's a fixed pie, and they've got to have so much of it. And I think monopoly has probably done more damage to the, think- the economic thinking of people in the world than any any other single source I can think of. played it with my grandson the other day, and he was amazed when I was using the word, and I said, hey, oh, you got a Monopoly there, because you got the three of one color, right? That's the idea. You want to get match and get the Monopoly, so... So you can wipe out your opponent, and then once you've destroyed him, that's capitalism at work there, right? (laughs) (laughs) Of course, the real world doesn't work like that. In the real world, the board is changing every second of every hour of every day, where those properties are getting larger, smaller, being subdivided, being amalgamated, being changed. The real world is an entirely different situation. And monopolies do not exist in the real world unless the government creates them. And that's the key to recalling about what a monopoly is. Ayn Rand defines a monopoly, and she always used the term coercive. A coercive monopoly is a business concern that can set its prices and and, and production policies independent of the market, with immunity from competition, immunity from the law of supply and demand. An economy dominated by such monopolies would be rigid and stagnant. In fact, she doesn't go far enough there. The industries dominated by such monopolies are already rigid and stagnant. True. They can't grow. All they can do is keep being what they are and never really innovate except maybe 50, 60 years behind the times. It's it's not possible otherwise. but she also says the necessary precondition of a course of monopoly is closed entry, the barring of all competing producers from a given field. This can be accomplished only by an act of government intervention in the form of special regulations, subsidies, or franchises. Without government assistance, it is impossible for a would-be monopolist to set and maintain his prices and production policies independent of the rest of the economy. Because if he attempted to set his prices and production at a level that would yield profits to new entrants significantly above those available in other fields, competitors would be sure to invade his industry. End quote. And of course, that's the exact thing that the competition. That's why business is so anti-capitalistic. You know, the uh, the I heard the limo cab company, mm-hmm. which had to fight the city monopoly and the, and the monopolies of the other two cab companies to get a foothold in the city. Now they want a monopoly. They want to limit licenses for other people going into their industry, and that's how, that's how businessmen get, get a reputation of being greedy. That is greed, as far as I'm concerned, but they're pushed into it because the government pushes them into that situation. That's where the problem always starts. So I think we have to think of a monopoly as having its essential characteristic. The only thing that should be feared about a monopoly, and there's no exceptions to this anywhere on earth, is, and that thing is government legislation prohibiting competition, and they can do it in so many ways. Licensing quotas, um, outright prohibitions, like in the post office or in healthcare, um, other means like zoning, environment, environment, my god, that's, that's what we're doing in, in Copenhagen. Um, all sorts of ways of restricting free economic trade. So there's no free market in public transit anywhere, which is why they're all technically bankrupt and can only be operated with unfree dollars and forced spending on the part of whomever politicians can fleece for their money. That's, that's about the, that's the only principle involved there. They don't care where they get the money. And, you know, the term free market means only that people within that market are free to choose with whom they do business. Force is prohibited. Consent is the operative word. So, when we say public, meaning government run or regulated transit, you know, it employs force and prohibits consent, making everything about it both immoral and uncivilized by every definition of every morality I know on the face of the earth, including Christian and some of those ones that I don't even hold to so dearly. And yet we just go and practice these immoralities as though it was just pragmatic business, you know, it's all based on need, on altruism. Ayn Rand was so, so right about all this stuff. And of course, the same monopoly principles apply to labor monopolies, which take the form of government-enforced prohibitions against, you know, competing businesses or workers, which they like to call, uh, a scabs, which is, you know, just terrible. And w- what's even worse now. Londoners are really being taken for a ride. They're just willingly hopping aboard and supporting the very system that got them so screaming mad. This is one of the things that's been frustrating me a bit. They've been so brainwashed by the very interests who have everything to gain by having a monopoly that they can't possibly see how anything called public transit could exist without it being run by government. It's just not even in their field of vision. To talk to most people about that, Robert, is like talking to them about, you know something so abstract it just doesn't exist in the real world. It's alien to them. It's totally alien to them. And the irony of that is that this is the one thing you can count on both labor and management agreeing (laughs) in the field of public transit, and that is that they like to have their, their... you know, keep their monopoly, each of them, and that's why they're both in bed together on that particular issue with government. Gover- not, neither of them could be doing this without government. That's why all, all, 100% of the responsibility lies at City Hall. And um, so, you know, it's really funny. It, this, the, the whole union thing, I was going to do a whole show on how how it's, how this union strike was really a, uh, an example of socialism versus capitalism. But when I got into some of the particulars, I thought, we'll save that one for later because that applies to all unions all the time. But I did want to point out that, that you know, when people hear about that battle, you know, between capitalism and socialism, it's not one between labor and business. You know, that's not what it's between. It's not between g- business and government or, in, or between labor and government. It's all about the three of them. Business, labor, and government colluding against the individual citizen and the taxpayer. That's how the players actually line up. But the citizens and taxpayers are clueless because they don't represent a single interest. That's the problem. They're just taxpayers. They've all got their own interests. Some of them like hockey, some like Star Trek, some (laughs) like something else. And they don't form clubs to form a collective that the city can appeal to. And that's why freedom which benefits everyone, always loses to government that caters to special interests who want to be, quote, protected from the free market, which means I want to be protected from freedom. I want to be protected from consent. I want to be protected from civilized concepts that mean I have to earn my money on a free market, allow other people to compete on the same same level playing field no we got to be protected and the the very use of that word offends me to such a degree it's uh, it's amazing i heard it again used in somewhere with copenhagen we all have to be protected you know from from co2 (laughs) that's so funny well the word itself you know sounds okay
5: however it, it they don't realize that it implies force it implies violence it implies coercion
2: but more than that. It doesn't imply any form of protection at all. Nothing's being protected. There's no protection of the citizens. It's a destructive term. They're it, destroying a market. They're it, it, destroying innovation. Exactly. And that's what, and that's what they're, they're protecting their fixed pie that they've already got, and they don't want that pie to even grow. That's the part they can't, can't conceive of. The very groups that think that they're being protected are also hurting themselves. And I imagine they could make a lot more profit charging lower prices, but that concept's beyond them because they've never been in a marketplace like that before. And I've seen it happen. And the funny thing is, though, even if the government stopped paying for public transit, I think taxpayers have become too cynical to believe that that they'll ever get any kind of tax reduction to go along with any reduced government spending. Because experience has taught them that politicians just find something else to spend the money on and carry on with, um, you know increasing taxes. And I've heard that a lot, but I have to tell you, that's a non-relevant argument. It's capable of being debated and resolved on its own. That's a whole separate issue. And, um, you know, when I think about this whole issue about the cabs and, and the right to work, it reminds me of the difference between the legitimate right to work and what people call a right to a job, which are two different things. And I think you're going to be ca- talking about that, aren't you? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, about a, a job is a relationship, of course, and you're going to talk about that. But when people s- say they have a so-called right to a job, which is a one-sided relationship with an employer, who, by the way, has no so- say in the matter, uh, once he's hired you, then it's their legitimate right to... you know, Then their legitimate right to work, actually, has been, it has been violated, and that's what we see here in the city. The, the city's made it startlingly clear that making sure Londoners... Um, are being provided with public transit is not on its agenda the number one priority of the city you know was to make sure that the monopoly control on both bus transit and taxi limo transit continued unabated and that's why they were starting to find people who uh, apparently this is an ongoing problem people running their own taxi cabs in the city and um I think what's truly remarkable about the whole transit monopoly situation is that a transit monopoly was justified in the first place precisely to prevent service disruptions and to keep costs low. (laughs) Is that irony upon irony upon irony? But the transit monopolies do exactly the opposite. They are the cause of service disruptions and costs are out of control, which is remarkable once again the justification for governments getting involved, right? Oh, we can't do it. People can't afford it. So, you know, round and round we go on the not so merry go round of watching what appears to be a labor and management dispute. We should all be making a straight trip to City Hall where the switch to stop the ride and let us all get off is actually located. That's where it is. That's where we've got to go. The city needs to get out of the so-called public transit service precisely because it's an essential service. (laughs) (laughs) God, don't ever tell me you're going to run the grocery stores, It's too
5: essential to leave in their hands. And it's
2: necessary to tens and thousands of people in this and every other city. The excuses for not doing this are repeated like a broken record with no light offered at the end of the tunnel. I could spend a whole other show on them, but I'm sure I'll get a few in before the end of the show. We're at the bottom of the half hour now. We'll have to take a quick break. And when we come back on the other side of this break, we'll be talking a little bit more about, um, well, the union situation or the union... Side of the issue, Would that being correct, unions way? in general, unions in general, okay. And uh, so when we come back after this break, we'll continue our discussion. Hey, Alice, oh,
4: hi, Ed,
0: where's
4: Ralph? He's not home yet, a little late tonight, eh? Oh, well, I guess uh, maybe he just stopped off, you know, with some of the boys for a little celebration. Celebration for what? Oh, didn't you see Ralph last night? Oh, well, you know that suggestion box they got down at the bus depot? Yeah. Well, Ralph put a suggestion in there, and the company liked it very much. They gave him a $10 prize for it. Hey, boy, I'm telling you, I always knew that boy had a second (laughs) of ability. What was the suggestion, anyway? Well, you know how the traffic gets sort of congested on Madison Avenue, and, oh, maybe four or five buses pull up to the same corner at the same time? Yeah. Well, Ralph suggested they bring in a traffic expert to work the problem out. So they hired one this morning. Boy, oh, boy. I'm telling you, Alex, you could be pretty proud of that husband of yours. I'm telling you, he's going to go far in that bus company. You know why? because his heart and soul is in his work. That's why all he thinks about is buses. He eats, drinks, and sleep buses. He's even felt like one. <laughs> oh, hiya, Ralph. Hey there, Rocky boy. Put it there in that pal. Congratulations to that. Alice has just told me the good news there about the suggestion you made down there at the company. Well, I'm telling you without boy, that was a pretty smart idea of yours, bringing in a traffic expert. <laughs> well, they didn't need an expert. I could have told them what the trouble was. There's too many buses on Madison you, that's all. Look, that traffic expert, you know what he'll probably do? Take some of the buses off the line and just lay off some of the bus drivers. Of course, that'll be pretty rough on uh, the bus drivers that'll ain't off. But at a time like this, you've got to think of yourself, huh? I mean, uh, think of how much better off you and the other drivers will be. than are working. What's well, a good word, buddy boy? I was the first to go. <laughs> oh, Ralph, you mean you were fired? Oh no, I wasn't fired. I was just temporarily laid off with nine other drivers. How about that? How could they do that to me? Me, who has worked and drove a bus for that company for 15 years. 15 years driving a bus. Aggravation, 101 aggravations every day. Driving a bus in the summertime, dying from the heat, in the wintertime freezing from the cold. All kinds of weather, through the rain, the snow, and the sleet. You know that sign they have in the post office, the mail gets through no matter what kind of weather? You know why? Because the mailman rides with me.
1: For Lumpton Street Bus Depot, please. Where's first class?
4: It's all first
1: class, mate. Excellent. Looking forward to the complimentary champagne and little towels. Look, let's spit up so we don't look conspicuous, yeah?
5: Welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where you can join the conversation at 519-661-3600 you can also email us at chrw at gmail.com and before the break we were talking about the ltc strike and bob the bus driver strike i think is a very good example of how force and coercion in society can lead to direct and intentional hardship for many at the rising costs of all it's a defining characteristic of labor unions that they rely on force or threat of force to achieve their goals. I have a few personal experience and anecdotes to share with you regarding unions and uh, threats so of so violence. You've,
2: you've, you've lived this, have you?
5: Well, yeah, to a small degree. Like uh, A lot of people out there, I'm sure, have had a lot of experiences, but I just want to share a few sure. with you because they were influential to me um, and, and helped shape uh, the direction that my political uh, Thoughts went into at an earlier age, too. I just graduated from university and I got a job as a clerk with a department in the federal government. What university was that? Uh, Memorial University. Memorial, okay. Because yeah. I know you went here at this university for a while. Oh, well, I worked or here. Or you worked here. Ah, worked here. Okay. As a matter of fact, I'm going to talk about that, too. Okay, okay. Yeah, I was a, a casual worker with the federal government and uh, not a member of the union, being casual. But it turned out that my direct supervisor, who actually sat across from me, happened to be the union head for the entire Atlantic region. One day, he asked me and two ladies, who were also casual workers, to his desk. He explained that his union was currently in negotiations with the government and it looked as if they were, were about to go on strike. He then went on to explain in no uncertain terms that while a casual employee we were entitled to continue working if the unionized employees went on strike, if we crossed his picket line, he would quote, break our effing legs, unquote. And of course, he used the long form of yeah, effing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so it turned out that no strike was called so there was no need to test his threat but he certainly made a lasting impression on me
2: and no doubt on those two uh, ladies he threatened with physical harm that's interesting because that's the that's the f- one of the words used in the first sentences of my union rep that I first had first really? time in my life first job I worked at Northern Telecom that's what it was called before or Northern Electric before it was called Northern Telecom and uh, I didn't little did I know this in the 70s that i had just joined on as an employee there just months before a pending strike eh and uh, i'd been there about three months or so and uh, up comes a stranger to me and he points over at my supervisor and he says you see that guy over there and i said yeah he says well he's an effing something or other okay and i'm going what's your problem right and uh he's telling me that he's my union rep <laughs> and then this i'm going oh my god is that right you know and i couldn't understand why he had this hostility towards management it, it just didn't make any sense to me because i was treated so nicely by all the management there and this was the first jerk i ran into in the in the whole place right and uh but it turns out we went on strike um just weeks after that particular event. So that was what they were gearing us up for. And then that was the time I sat down. I remember calculating, they went on strike for 10 cents an hour, uh, 10 cent an hour increase. And I sat down after being off, I forget how many weeks were off. I already figured out that the money we had lost in our pay, and I'd never been paid so much in my life, uh, to, to make it back, in terms of the increase they were fighting for, I would have had to stay there for 17 years with uninterrupted labor, no disputes, no changes and everything, just to make up the loss of that one strike, that one short little period of strike. Right. And so I quit, went back to school, and haven't been in a union again. I have a similar story, just to continue on with
5: that one with the federal government. When I would take a break, or lunch break, or coffee break, um, being new to the job, and I wanted to make a good impression all that, sometimes I would come back early, you know after i finished my lunch and uh, get back to work and my same supervisor again came over to me and said you stop working you know we fought for this break so you have to take it you cannot work right right you, we can't let the the management see you work as a matter of fact you've got to slow down when i first started the job he's told me You have to do your job slowly, because once you do it fast, that's what management will always expect. That's the whole premise of the movie, I'm All Right Jack, with Peter Sellers, if anybody's (laughs) seen that. That's what the whole thing is about. Well, later on, after about six months working there, it's a rather oppressive environment, I must say, but after about six months, he came to me and said, your six months is up. However, they're offering you a full-time job here if you want it, which means that you'll be part of the union. And I said, you can keep it. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not working here. I would have made a fortune. That was yeah. a really well-paying job, but there's Some people, no way that I would work under those conditions with that kind of threat and those kinds of people. It was just oppressive. I know.
2: I, I, I hear so many people in union environments talk about how oppressive and and just terrible it is to work in there. And I hate to say it, a lot of them are city employees, and uh, you know, so you wonder why we have to have um, all these weird things going on at City Hall, from ethics commissioners to God oh, knows yeah. what on down. That's yeah, that, what happens when you have a shotgun wedding when everybody's forced to associate with each other yeah, a little closer to home bob and actually you were involved in
5: this particular anecdote was that here at the university i was working as a, a lab technician i didn't do anything i uh, knew no, you will you'll oh. know about this in a second <laughs> now remember we don't talk about these things before the show but i was working as um, a lab technician and uh, all, all other employees such as me had the opportunity to join a voluntary staff association there were many among us who thought that they would rather force all of us to join cupy Canadian Union of Public Employees, or at, at least forces all to pay into QP, to be more precise. Well, I and another employee, with the help of uh, you, Bob. Um, and the Freedom Party started a group called UW- UWO Staff for a Cooperative oh, yeah, Work Environment. That. Yeah, that goes back a long
2: time now. In fact, at the same time, we were involved with, the a, Sears. with another union oh, yeah. event. I wasn't actually here at that time. That was run by other Freedom Party people. I was Sorry. in Florida on holidays. <laughs> I came back, that's when I found out about it. But um, that was something to do with food services here. Oh, was that on, right here? Yeah. Because I remember you were at also the same involved with the
5: Sears uh, union certification. That, that right?
2: was close to the same time and the London Garbage way back when right we, yeah. we were it was a union madness back then and that's how i learned a lot about unions right well anyway we delivered
5: pamphlets that you helped us create to the workers involved and spoke to the union certification rally trying to persuade our fellow employees that we're getting along fine with the voluntary association in fact bob i discovered that over a 10-year period there had only been four grievances with management and three of those had been decided in favor of the employee so why force everyone to pay 60 dollars a month to qp When a $5 month voluntary fee to a staff association seemed to be working so well. As it turned out, we won the day and the certification drive failed, but not until I received several anonymous calls threatening me with physical harm and even death. Now, mind you, I also received many more calls thanking me for putting this together and, and saying what a lot of people had meant to say, but they were just too intimidated, too coerced into being, you know, if they say anything, they thought that they might receive these death threats, and they they wouldn't be able to handle it. So now, the, you
2: know, that brings back another memory too. During the same time when we were um, we actually rented trucks and picked up garbage for yes. for people in the city, that was our way of showing a protest. So we go down certain streets. And uh, we would get calls on the phones at Freedom Party, you know. I'm going to leave battery acid in the garbage. I'm going to, you, you know, something. Yeah, or it will be. We're going up. to dump all the garbage on your lawn. That well, was Mark Emery's lawn They did at that the time. to Mark, yeah, yeah. But they never did it. They never followed through with anything. No, they were just bullies. Yeah. They
5: were just bullies. You just got to just stand up to them.
2: But that doesn't mean it could never happen. No,
5: and, you know, some of those famous incidents that we hear about. Well, I think we're going to take a break in a minute. But uh, when we come yes, back, sir. I'm going to talk a little bit more about unions, not some more anecdotal evidence, but just some basic comments about uh, the structure of. Unions and why violence is so necessary for them to exist. Okay, sounds good.
3: How could they have retimed the job without any one of us knowing? Correct, brother. And that brings me to a point that has led us to take a particularly grave view of the matter in hand. My information is that one of our members did, in fact, cooperate with the management. Brother Windrush, I'm obliged to put to you an open question Did you, or did you not, in fact, collaborate with the management? Me? Collaborate? What do you mean? Was you on loadings yesterday afternoon? Yes. Brother Jackson, you're in charge of loadings. Where was you? Between the hours referred to, I was at a shop steward's meeting. So you was there alone, brother? Yes, I was. Except for the other chap. The other chap? I think you ought to know, brothers, that this so-called other chap was in point of fact the new time and motion man. That's torn it. That's hard. Well, I so, be. <laughs> Brother Windrush, perhaps you'd care to make a statement about that. I'm terribly sorry, but he didn't tell me that. He just said that he was new here. You must be dead stupid. of course he wasn't going to tell you. It was just that he was so interested in the truck. Well, all he's interested in is more work for less money. But I wasn't working particularly hard, and I got the job done in half the time. Well, at that rate, he'd only need half the drivers. Oh, you want your head seen to. It's all right for you, matey. We need the money. So do I. In fact, I could do with a bit more. You're going the right bleeding way about getting it, no mistake. Here's the street
1: map, Minister, and uh, the directory. Splendid, madam. This is the Prime Minister's constituency, isn't it? Oh, look, a park. Oh near the station you know minister one requirement of a national transport policy is to bring bus stations nearer to railway stations but that would mean building on the park Unless, Yes, yes <laughs> so somebody has to suffer in the national interest make a note would you bernard bus station to be moved into queen charlotte's park <laughs> oh. minister there's a big bus repair shop Wouldn't it be more economical to amalgamate the bus and train repairs? Oh, absolutely, Minister. Big Mm -hmm. saving. Mm -hmm. Bus repair shop to be closed, Bernard. Mm -hmm. Now, this is commuter country, isn't it? Mm -hmm. What about that? Well, commuter trains run at a loss, you know. They're only really used at rush hours. So commuters are, in effect, subsidised. Isn't that rather unfair on the others? Oh, it's a great injustice, Minister. (laughs) Commuters to pay full economic fares, (laughs) Mind you, that'll double the price of the tickets, Minister. Can't make an omelette without breaking eggs. There are quite a few railway stations in this area, British Rail as well as Underground. Yes, yes. Well, one view is that areas with reasonable rail services don't really need an evening bus service as well. A very persuasive view, to my mind. Mm. All bus services
2: to cease after (laughs) 6.30pm.
5: Welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9. What
2: do you think of that? Government planning (laughs) (laughs) transit. Typical.
5: (laughs) You know, Bob, we've been ragging on the unions quite a bit, but, you know, the notion of a a union of workers is not in and of itself necessarily a bad thing. Well, an association. An association, yeah. People have a right to organize and to create associations to better negotiate from a position of strength. And by strength, of course, I mean numbers, simply that, not violence. In fact, I would think that a major employer would much prefer dealing with a single negotiator for a collection of workers rather than dealing with each individual worker. It just simply makes it more efficient. This would be ideal, however, if it weren't for the systematic intrusion of force and coercion in today's labour unions. The force takes two forms, here in Canada at least, to form the force compulsion to pay union dues even if you don't wish to be a member of the union the so-called rand formula and the ability of striking workers workers to effectively commit acts of intimidation aggression and violence without fear of intervention by the police or the law they forget that a job is a relationship it's as simple as that it has no violence has no place force has no place in a relationship and
2: once you put that in there you've lost your civilization you know it's interesting you talk about that second element i was listening to murray faulkner at the beginning of the bus strike when they were threatening to put pickets up here at the university of western ontario to prevent that private uh, shuttle service from going back and forth and stop people and give them information and he was actually asked what was the what was the uh the policy of the city on on union violence in that sense and he he gave a very muddled answer i was very very not not too um didn't feel too confident after that you know he says well you know it's it's not too clear they can stop you for so long and 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 talk to you and i'm going well do i have that right too can i go up around the street and stop people when when they're in a hurry to get somewhere so they are forced to listen to my message Wow! Yeah, of course not. Not in my not in my world. That's for sure. Yeah, but just to get back to the Rand formula, Bob, yeah. that's a term that a lot of people have not
5: heard. At least I haven't heard this. It's got nothing to do with Ian Rand, time. right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> just, no. just to make sure.
5: <laughs> Actually, it's Justice Ivan Rand from 1946 uh, uh, developed this formula, which basically said that um, if if a, if a union wanted to force anybody else in that uh, collective area to for, to be uh, they didn't want to be part of the union at least had they had to pay the dues and they would force the employer to garnish the wages to pay the union dues and it came to a head back in 91 when uh merv levine you remember that case merv levine was actually involved uh, in that case oh were you we'll talk about freedom in the ncc another (laughs) another story yeah um mr levine's union dues were being spent not only for collective bargaining purposes, but for union political activities he didn't support, including helping to fund the new Democratic Party. The Supreme Court of the day recognized that the RAND formula, the compulsory collection of union dues, violated a person's freedom of association, but in typical fashion dismissed it by using the infamous Section 1 of the Constitution, a clause I'd like to call the So What Clause. (laughs) You have these rights as outlined in the Constitution, but so what? (laughs) (laughs) The ability of striking workers to commit acts of violence, harassment, intimidation, etc., unchecked by the police, has been seen here in Canada on numerous occasions. In the United States, there's an organization I just discovered called the National Institute for Labor Relations Research, which documented, in that country, 8,799 incidents of union violence since 1975. Now, out of these... Only 1963 arrests were made, and only 258 convictions found. a conviction rate of barely 3%. The reason given is primarily the powerlessness of local law enforcement in the face of a multitude of strikers. They just just as soon leave them alone, let them get on with their shenanigans and hope it just all goes away. And of course, that just feeds that bully mentality. Can you imagine business owners or management banding together, setting bonfires on union leaders' private property, walking picket lines, impeding traffic, and taunting employees? They'd be arrested on the spot. Why? Because there's less of them. It wouldn't take much effort on the part of the police, and the law does not favor the business owner in labor disputes. It always favors the union. Fortunately, Canada has not had many volatile labor disputes in the past few decades. Compared to earlier in the past century, but we can never forget that as long as we have forced association in unions with the Rand formula and laws that favor organized labor over businessmen, the stage is always or labor ready over for free violence. Labor. Right, yeah. and you know unions just—it's—it's it's not just unions; it's the left, it's the socialists, especially the who where violence is always used as a
2: tool, a tactic. They, they, they use it all the time. Well, if you want to s- get something for nothing, nothing doesn't just, you know, something just doesn't, doesn't come by on its own. You That's have to right. take it. You have to beat people over
5: the head, quite yeah. quite literally. And if you just look at Copenhagen today, or even yesterday, thousands of people in Copenhagen, all socialists, all anti-capitalists, yep. all out there that I heard that on the, the, the report
2: preceding the show today. They were all violent, yeah. and of course they're, they're, they they blame the police for the violence. Yeah, and they say, <laughs> we're, we're just doing a peaceful sit-in. We're sitting here blocking entrance to this Yes, and that.
5: we're <laughs> trespassing, we're intimidating. We're, we're trying to push our way into a, a, a building in a private meeting and yet the police are the ones doing the violence that's nonsense mm-hmm. of course you know so socialists are always on the left are always using violence and it has to stop it is not civilized in this day and age for force and violence there is no way that we should be, be able to put up with this nonsense just, they, just remember the, um, the World Trade Organization, uh, the, the nations wanted to get together, and Seattle was one time, and they wanted to talk about trade, mm-hmm. you know, re- re- reducing trade barriers throughout the world. A laudable goal. Of course, what happens? You get thousands, tens of thousands of socialists, anti-capitalists out there using violence, committing acts of vandalism and intimidation, trespassing, to, uh, to, to protest. You
2: know, protest where their bread and butter comes from, <laughs> exactly. which is amazing, biting the hands that <laughs> feed them. It's, it's, it's. <laughs> you just sit there and you wonder what is wrong with these people. There's <laughs> no place for you, it. You know, unions and beyond that, beyond even the, um, I suppose, the political issues, which is what we're talking about. The one thing, even from a work point of view, I've never, from what I've seen in unions, unions and labor legislation, seem to force employers to value a specific work function, and not an employee. And that, to me, is why it's it's living. Why people don't have a generally good feeling in most unionized places. Why, why like you said, you didn't feel comfortable. It working was oppressive. Very yeah. oppressive. And, and that's because everybody's fighting for the same piece of the pie. Yeah, if you it's think a an of employer non- can be oppressive, you just work for a union. <laughs> but you know. The inequities bef- between pay scales of one employee to another, though, have been, you know, that's been considered a social injustice if Bill gets paid more than Jim or something like that, mm-hmm. right? And uh, so, therefore, that necessitates social justice, which is just forced equity, force again, between those who have earned their value and those who have not. And that's what unions like to do. And that's why they were telling you, don't work so hard. Yep. Because um, they've got to equalize the whole playing field. Down to the lowest common denominator. And that's right. Another thing that came up during the strike, too, some of the arguments I heard that I thought were relatively irrelevant, you keep hearing this, well, you know, now is not the right time to ask for a raise or go on strike. Now is not the time to spend money on this or that or anything because of economic conditions. Well, actually... There's never a right time to strike, in in the sense, for the reasons we're doing here. The economic conditions are different from individual to individual, so that even in the best of times, there are those who are suffering economic cutbacks and job losses. It's, again, whatever the majority is experiencing, that's what everybody thinks is, is the big scene. And, you know, in a free market, only an increase in productivity of a specific employee. Not the profits of the employer, by the way. Um... Is the only thing that would justify salary increase. Just because the employer is making more money, that might have nothing to do at all with the employee being more productive. It might be that he saves some money in some other area and so, or gave up something he was using them for himself and then he got more profit as a result. So you can't really justify it on that. There are always people willing to do the same job for equal or less pay than what's being paid out now. And so it's from them, from competitive labor, the so-called scabs that unions are really quote-unquote protecting themselves from. And, and that's why I always say every strike is a strike not against management but against other labor. Keeping them out of their workplace. And yes. that's what we just saw at the LTC. So, you know, this allows taxpayer... Uh, oh, uh, the other thing, too, is y- y- you hear this, too. We've got to make sure we're getting the best value for our taxpayer dollars, right? Great. And the two words value and taxpayer dollars do not go together, okay? <laughs> oxymoronic? It's totally oxymoronic. <laughs> you just can't have a value in something that's been ripped off from you. But um, that's about all. We, boy, I've got so many more things we can say. But believe it or not, our time is up, not just for today, but believe it or not, for this whole entire year. And uh, so just before we go, I have to say this, you know, for the next two weeks, uh, Just Right will be here, but Robert and I won't be here, (laughs) live, that is, as CHRW will re-air two of our recent shows, and Robert and I, and most of CHRW staff, uh, will take a holiday break until the new year. I guess we're going to be back when? On the 7th? 7th, yeah. So, to Bronwyn Loden, who's our current on-air operator and spoken word director. To Tafsir Diallo, who was the show's operator in the first half of the year. To Alex Jarowski, who has both operated the show and appeared as a guest. To Michael Brown, program director. Grant Steen, station manager. And to all of the volunteers, guests, callers, and of course to you, the listeners. Have a safe and happy holiday season. You've managed to put up with us for another year, and since October of this year, there have been two rightish Roberts to put up with, <laughs> you like that rightish Roberts. How improbable no. is that, eh? Yet you are witnessing this phenomenon right before your very ears. So we won't be back live until 2010. That's the year we make contact, right? Right, Robert? (laughs) January 7th is a launch date for Just Right 2010, a return to the live version. So in the meantime, you know what to do. Join us again. Next week, even, we'll be here. The show will be when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Be right, stay right, act right, do right. We'll see you next year.
3: Under the clothes, everything will be all right. How did you get so wet? <laughs> Standing at a bus stop for an hour, waiting for a bus. Well, that was daft, wasn't it? Well, that was hard to know you were on strike. <laughs> well, stand at a bus stop for an hour, nothing comes along. Blimey, you must have thought something had gone wrong. Why well, you lot run the buses, we thought it was normal service. <laughs>